This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. The government pension offset and the windfall elimination provision have for decades limited Social Security payments available to certain federal employees, mainly those under the old civil service retirement system and anyone else who receives a pension from earnings that were not taxed by Social Security. A bill to repeal GPO and WEP had a congressional hearing last month, a field hearing in Louisiana. We get analysis now from John Hatton the Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And John, before we get to the hearing and your feeling about what it was revealing, let's talk about WEP and GPO, often touted as the so-called evil twins here. There's a difference, though. They're not quite the same. Uh, Tell us the difference between WEP and GPO for starters. So WEP reduces the primary Social Security amount for somebody who has a non-covered pension. So for the federal community, that's the CSRS pension. But it also affects police officers, teachers, firefighters in particular states and localities where they had a similar system, CSRS, where they're only paying into their pension system and not paying into Social Security. Because you earn that pension through that non-covered work, but then you go out and you earn your Social Security through private sector work or covered work, you get a hit from your Social Security benefits. And so that's WEP. And so we feel it's unfair for Social Security law to penalize people uh, simply for earning that public sector pension when they earn separately through separate work their Social Security benefits. Right. So if they did not have separate work and only did the public sector job and only have the pension from there, you would say then WEP should be in place because in theory, the pension they receive offsets what they would have received from Social Security. Right. Well, WEP wouldn't even be in place at all because they wouldn't get any Social Security benefits because you have to work and get credit for Social Security benefits as an earned benefit as well. So yeah, it's not in place and it doesn't need to be in place when you don't earn that Social Security benefit through your private sector work. And GPO then, on the other hand, what? So that takes away uh, part of or all of the spousal benefit or the survivor benefit for individuals based on their CSRS or other non-covered pension. It takes two-thirds of that pension amount. So if you had 10000 you know, in benefits, you'd take 6700 and reduce that spousal benefit you get for Social Security or the survivor benefit. I really think the worst situations for GPO are really where that, that CSRS or teacher pension are just big enough to wipe out the entire survivor benefit. So there you have a married couple and they have these two sources of income and maybe the spousal benefit they weren't getting, but then, you know, the one spouse passes away and then they have that entire income wiped away. Whereas when you have Social Security, you at least get the better of the two formulas and you get, you know, it's usually not as hard of a hit, whereas GPO really has some situations where people are really left out to dry. So should the WEP and GPO be eliminated or should they have their formulas adjusted such that they're more equitable? So NARF's primary view is that they should be eliminated and repealed. They were fair, unfair to begin with, and they base basically reductions in Social Security benefits on income earned outside of that system. But we've also supported reform bills. Right now, there's mostly just WEP reform bills. There's not as much on the GPO side for reform versus repeal. But we support a you know, modest reform bills that are in the House on both the Democratic and Republican side that are very similar, uh, but a little bit different. So yeah, we're willing to see some improvement in the status quo, even if our primary goal is that full repeal. So those bills would do what precisely that are out there now? 
So they would provide some relief for current beneficiaries that are affected by WEP. There's a Neal bill. That's Richie Neal, who's the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee. And that would provide $150 per month increase in benefits for those affected by WEP. And it would create this new proportional formula going forward. The Arrington bill, uh, he's also a member of the Ways and Means Committee uh, from Texas that has a lot of state employees affected. That bill would do something very similar, increase the primary benefit by 100, spousal benefits affected by WEP by 50 for current beneficiaries. And it would also create the same proportional benefit formula going forward. The big difference between the two is that at some point in the future, the Arrington bill only gives you that new formula, whereas the Neal bill protects people and gives them the better of the two. So that creates potential costs on the Neal side for for the Social Security Trust Fund and on the Arrington side, potential benefit cuts. We're speaking with John Hatton. He is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association at this hearing, which took place, as we mentioned, in Louisiana, because a much larger proportion of state employees tend to come under WEP and GPO than at the federal level. What was the sense of the hearing? Well, I think it really provided an opportunity for some members of the Ways and Means Committee, and particularly the Ways and Means Chairman, Jason Smith, to hear directly from people how they're impacted. And I thought the stories that were given by police officers, firefighters, teachers, you know, were very persuasive, I think, to the committee members in the sense that people weren't expecting this. It's caused them a lot of financial heartache, and they felt it was very unfair. And I, and I think those points got driven home to the committee members, and it, it was noteworthy that there is a hearing on this bill. You know, we've had high levels of co-sponsors in the past. Now we have a very high level of 300 co-sponsors in the House on the repeal bill, but the committee has always been the place where the bill has kind of gone to die. And so seeing the committee take some action and going through that process is a good good sign for good development for this issue. Where the next step goes, it's unclear. You know, the, the biggest obstacle to repealing these provisions is the cost of it. It costs $146 billion over 10 years. So there need to be some offsets. So that's largely the biggest obstacle. Now, if, is there some reform path or something else? And so having the committee take a closer look, take this a little bit more seriously than they have in the past is, is clearly a good sign for us. Yes, the 146 or $150 billion strain on the Social Security Trust Fund comes when, you know, we already know from an actuarial standpoint, it's out of money already. Yeah. I mean, Social Security is going to go insolvent without any changes in law in the early 2030s, according to the actuaries. So, you know, people are talking about Social Security reforms already right now. My guess is they don't deal with that until 2030 something uh, when they're about to go insolvent. And it's just really a matter of balancing out the revenues, the money out. And, and with the aging population, there's more money going out now than there is coming in. And at some point that will draw down that bank of money that was was put there or really it's budget authority. But, you know, I would bet on the Congress figuring out eventually, but not really any time before that. Well, they can figure it out. They just don't have the guts to do anything about <laughs> it until they have to at the last right. minute. <laughs> yeah, it's not until they're facing beneficiaries with potential benefit cuts that I think they'll actually do something on this, but we will see. And of course, as we speak, we're in the second continuing resolution, and no one knows what's going to happen in the middle of next month or early February. I've already heard predictions of a full year CR. But as they discuss all of this, there is the talk of that fiscal commission, which would try to maybe have some kind of a academic or comprehensive approach to the deficits, which keep mounting year after year, adding to the national debt. Your look shows that there could be some real implications for federal employees there. 
Yeah, if they do pass a fiscal commission as part of a new deal on government funding, certainly federal benefits like federal retirement benefits and federal health benefits could be on the table. You know, it'll depend on the details of how they construct that commission. Proposals that we have seen include kind of if a majority of both parties on the commission support a provision or measure, then that would go as part of a package. If they support the package, it would go to the floor for an expedited vote. So it really sets up a a more likely scenario for there to be passage of these provisions, uh, taking it away from kind of the normal congressional process. So I think it depends on what the details of how that commission would be constructed, you know, who's on that commission, kind of what the approach would be from leaders in appointing members to it. But certainly if it is passed as part of a deal, we'll start fighting on those federal benefits issues as part of that commission process. Right. This could give the umbrella protection, you might say, to some members of Congress, anyhow, for talking about increased employee contributions to the federal pension program, you know, the FERS program, or even to get rid of the defined pension system and go to the pay-as-you-go fully TSP, what you save is what you're going to have type of system. Yeah, there's a whole host of proposals that come on the table as part of this. I mean, we saw coming out of the last fiscal commission, which was the Simpson-Bowles commission, that didn't get that expedited vote, but it still put a number of proposals on the table. Uh, The first thing that came out of that that actually passed was a pay freeze for federal employees for three years. So, you know, that was a proposal from the commission and actually got enacted, even though the commission didn't get a vote. There was other suggestions like increasing retirement contributions. Now, that actually happened as part of offsets for sequestration. Uh, Now that new hires are paying 4.4% into their retirement instead of 0.8%, which is just an additional tax on top of their earnings. So, you know, other proposals that we see out there, the Republican Study Committee has proposals to get rid of FERS entirely for new hires, to change retirement calculations for current employees, to get rid of cost of living adjustments. So there is a ton of proposals out there that they could find savings from on the backs of uh, federal workers or federal retirees. Yeah, so you're worried that this commission, this idea of a fiscal commission could open the Pandora's box, so to speak, to all kinds of lurid proposals. It, it certainly could. And I think, again, I, I we would have a job to do if this commission is put in place about pushing back and talking to the right people. I think the, the federal community would have that job as well to make sure members knew what the impact it would be. Right now, it's kind of about the design of it and how is it set up and what is the purpose of it being set up to do? And is that taking aim in part at federal benefits, we will see. And in the meantime, there is a federal pay raise on the horizon in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it'll just take an executive order from the president, but that's basically already put in place in terms of the alternative pay plan that was sent to Congress uh, in August. So a 4.7 across the board pay increase for the non-locality pay part and a 0.5% increase in the locality pay on average across the board. So that'll be welcome news for federal employees um, in January. And I I think the one benefit of a CR going through the beginning of the year is that Congress isn't going to have an opportunity to kind of mess with this before it goes into place. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's always good news. John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF. We'll take a short break. And when we return, what to expect in the form of a federal employee raise next year, You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. 
The 2024 pay raise could become official any day now. President Biden is expected to give feds on the general schedule an average of 5.2 percent boost to their paychecks starting in January. But that's not the only change to federal pay coming next year. There's also the issue of what nobody can ever quite figure out, locality pay. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has been following this. And so we know about the overall planned increase that's been on the books and on the suggestion box for quite a while now, Drew. But the locality pay map changing again, I guess it changes every year. What's the latest going on there? Right. There are a couple of changes to the locality pay map coming in 2024. This is something where we first saw the recommendations for this back in December of last year. But now it's become official with some finalized regulations from the Office of Personnel Management. This means starting in January, about 33,000 federal employees across the country are going to be seeing higher pay raises than they would have otherwise. So while there's a 5.2% average pay raise starting in January for federal employees, that is an average. So everyone gets a little bit more or less depending on their locality pay area. So the new locality pay areas established will give feds working in these particular areas a little bit bigger pay raise. And those four localities are Fresno, Madera, Hanford, California, Reno and Fernley in Nevada, Rochester, Batavia and Seneca Falls in New York and then Spokane and Coeur d'Alene in Washington and Idaho. All right. And of course, question is why those places? They don't strike you as high cost areas necessarily, maybe anywhere in California, but Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, maybe there's been a run on the potato crops or something. I don't know, driving the prices up. And we got a message, which I think you answered from a reader wondering, well, you know, why not Boise? (laughs) It's expensive here, too. Yeah, that is a great question, Tom. And that question from the reader as well about, you know, why Spokane, Washington, why these other areas and not other areas, right? So the way that that process works is there's a lot of steps in it. So as I mentioned, last December, what happened was the Federal Salary Council, which is a panel of several different federal pay experts. This includes union leaders and other stakeholders in federal pay. They basically listed out some recommendations and they chose these four areas to be included as the new locality pay areas. Now, that's not to say that Boise, Idaho, for example, couldn't become its own locality pay area sometime in the future. The council generally looks at a lot of different areas as what they call research areas. And if there's found to be a pay disparity in these areas for an extended period of time, at least three years or more, I believe it is, then that can be considered as a new locality pay area. There's still a couple more steps in the process after that. It is kind of a long process, but, you know, that's just that's kind of generally how it works. Right. And so that portion of average pay increases, which is maybe a tenth of the total or 20 percent of the total, that's what those people would get. Everyone else gets the 80 percent of the pay raise. But if you're in locality pay, you get that extra 20 percent of the raise. Right. So, for example, let's take the pay raise for 2024. It's going to be an average of 5.2 percent. The way that's broken down is you have a 4.7 percent base pay raise. This is something that every federal employee or most federal employees on the general schedule will see added to their paycheck in 2024. Then depending on what locality you're in, you get an average of a 0.5% locality pay adjustment. So this means, you know, for example, some higher cost of living areas, Seattle, Washington, D.C., New York City, et cetera, these ones will get probably a little bit more than than a 
0.5% adjustment. Other more rural areas, those who aren't in a specified locality pay area are going to see a little bit lower. So maybe a little bit less than that 0.5% average. You know, it just depends on where you work. But generally, it'll be around 5.2% in the end. And the Office of Personnel Management did get some other questions besides about Boise, Idaho, which was our question, on the new localities. And what are they saying about this? What are they doing to clarify? So OPM, at the end of the process for when new locality pay areas are established, they issue proposed regulations and then they finalize those regulations. When they issued the proposed regulations this time around for the new, the four new pay locality areas starting in 2024, a couple people saw, you know, uh, commenters on those proposed rules saw between the proposal and the final rule some counties weren't specifically listed out in the final rules, whereas they were mentioned in the proposed rules. So then the question, of course, becomes, hey, what happened to this one county? Is it not going to be included in the locality pay area? OPM said, you know, it did get a lot of questions about that. But at the end of the day, those counties that weren't explicitly mentioned will still be included. It's just that OPM didn't necessarily need to list them out. They just said the general area. So there's a little bit of technical language there, but rest assured, OPM will have all of that information on its website uh, once everything goes through at the end of the month. My theory is that they go to the different areas and see how much a beer costs at, at the local tavern happy hour. And that can tell you whether it's a high cost area or someplace out on the hustings that, heck, they don't need locality pay. You know, a couple of uh, pickled eggs and a beer is only five bucks. I guess that's that's one way to look at it. I, you know, we'd have to maybe map out where different breweries are versus locality pay areas, but it's one perspective, I suppose. You know, as I wrote last year, and someone wrote to me and said it was one of their favorite lines: "Is where micro brews come in, then locality pay is sure to follow." And and I guess that's the gestalt. None of this is final yet. I mean, what has to happen specifically before this becomes law? Well, we are very close to the end of this process now, Tom. We'll see President Joe Biden, assuming nothing happens in Congress. In the meantime, he will sign off on an executive order by the end of December. This usually happens really around the last week of the month. Once that executive order is signed off, then OPM will publish pay tables on its website. So that'll detail exactly all of the different locality pay areas and what each pay raise will be for each of those areas. Then the pay adjustments will take effect in the first full pay period of 2024 in January. And by the way, this question also comes up every year, and I know you know the answer. Your locality pay depends on where your federal office is that you report to or report into or where you live. It is based on where you work. Right. So the question then becomes if your office is in Boise and you decide to telework from New York City, you're not going to get locality pay because Boise doesn't have it. That is a great question. Uh, it's something that definitely a lot of members of Congress are questioning about uh, how that all works with telework. Um, but generally, as things stand right now, it's based on your uh, home base like work location. Right. So if there's anyone in New York City or Washington, D.C. listening and hearing us who teleworks to Boise, give us a holler because I'd like to know what your life is like. But in the meantime, I, I don't think there's too many people that are doing that particular city pair. I wonder if that's even a GSA flight city pair, New York City to Boise. I'm sure. 
You can get from LaGuardia to Boise nonstop. All right. Anything else people need to know, Drew? I think that about covers it, Tom. Just look out for President Joe Biden to sign off on that by the end of the month, and then we'll see those new paychecks starting in January. And you'll report on it before the ink is dry. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And finally, this note, my daily Federal Drive show will, in the next couple of weeks, present a series of interviews with senior executive service members who are recipients of this year's Presidential Rank Awards. Here's an excerpt from my upcoming interview with Tim Curry. He's Deputy Associate Director for Accountability and Workforce Relations at the Office of Personnel Management. My question was how a career civil servant at that level deals with the wide swings in policy that occur with each successive presidential administration. My example was federal union official time and the use of federal facilities to house full-time union officials. It can be challenging, but it, it, it keeps it interesting, too. I would just kind of highlight the point that you made by, you know, I am a career federal employee. And of course, as career federal employees, it's our responsibility to support and help implement the policies of the administration that's in charge. So yes, the the policies will vary from administration to administration, but I think having that experience, it helps make me a better advisor to whoever that administration is. I can kind of not only give them my technical assistance, but I can offer a historical perspective and maybe point out um, maybe what could happen, what might happen, depending on which approach that they might want to take. Yeah. So, for example, you could say, and I'm making this up and not implying that you would have said this, but, well, you know, if you let them have their office space, your negotiations will go faster and then you'll get closer and you'll get past the negotiation, get to the labor agreement, and so maybe give them the office. That type of thing you might be able to say. I don't know that I'd get into that kind of specifics. Uh, Certainly uh, when I'm advising agencies on stuff like that, we might talk about collective bargaining strategies. And obviously you just highlighted one key component of collective bargaining is uh, horse trading, if you will. You make uh, agreements to kind of achieve your objectives. But certainly when there is a, a big change in policy direction, then we'll look at the best way to approach that and advise not only the administration, but advise agencies on, on the most prudent course of action. And without being specific, has it ever happened in your career that an administration or an OPM director or someone at OMB will say, you know, Tim, you're right. We're only going to do this and maybe not all of that. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I'm here as an advisor. I don't make the policy. Understood. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, I've spent my career uh, not only at OPM, but at the Department of Defense. And I did a stint over at the Patent and Trademark Office. But certainly the labor relations folks know that we advise management and the management makes the decision and they might accept part of our recommendations or all of our recommendations, but that that just goes with the job. So you would then maybe characterize yourself as an honest broker? Uh, Yes, I would exactly uh, describe myself that way. Tim Curry, the Deputy Associate Director for Accountability and Workforce Relations at the Office of Personnel Management. He is a winner of a Presidential Rank Award this year, and he, along with a series of Rank Award winners, will have their interviews airing on the Federal Drive in the coming weeks. And that's it for today's FedLife. We'll return next week with more to help you plan your professional and financial life. Until then, I'm Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.